Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, good morning, guys. How are you? Great. Did you guys watch the uh, the Coinbase documentary which came out? It's called Coin. I haven't seen it yet. I've seen some some uh, talk on Twitter about it, but I haven't seen it. Did you uh, Did you watch yeah, it? I did. I, I watched it last night. I think you should check it out. It, they talk about how Coinbase has been compliant from like its inception. It's a it's a ninety minute uh, movie. I think you should watch it. Pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, it's always interesting, right? Because you have different perspectives. So you know, take it with a grain of salt. I, I do admit I love watching some of the old documentaries, older documentaries about the early days of crypto and in particular Bitcoin. And as someone who's worked in this industry now for about six years, I always realize that there's so much to learn and who were some of these OGs and what were their stories and where are they now is, is always uh, interesting to dig into a bit. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, like there are no, there are no doubts about it that this is a documentary published by like Coinbase, but it's just a good background on how the crypto landscape looked like in like 2012, 2011. Here we are. We find ourselves uh, back together again for another episode of the Crypto Brief podcast. This is Jason. I'm here with Jack and Parth. We've got Ryan taking the week off. I took the week off last week and I have to tell you guys, it was nice to unplug and get away, but I definitely felt like uh, a lot was going on. So we have a lot to talk about, but Parth, I want to ask you, did you do anything last week that was uh, outside of the ordinary for you? Yeah. So, um, so last week um, I tried this really wacky project called BitCloud. Uh, so this is a very black mirror risk uh, kind of project. So BitCloud uh, mixes speculation and social media. And so the idea of this application is that you are buying a creator coin. So every person has a value attached to themselves. So imagine a Ryan coin and a Jack coin, but Ryan coin might be worth more than a Jack coin because uh, based on speculation around him. So every person is mapped to a certain value and uh, the price is dependent on their like online reputation and their social clout. I, it kind of reminded me of like a few like Black Mirror episodes, but what, what do you guys think? <laughs> this, this has been out for a while, right? A couple mm-hmm. of years now? Yep, yeah, it's been, it's been a year and a half. Uh, so, so last week I created a, a creator token for myself uh, using a pseudonymous identity. Uh, and I asked two of my friends to buy those tokens because I wanted to see the price fluctuations. But uh, yeah, it's been, it's been around for a while. Um, Anybody who has a significant following on Twitter automatically gets to reserve a token. What's the uh, liquidity like on Parth token? <laughs> <laughs> right, right now. So once I create a creator coin, I have to put in some liquidity. So I put in like a hundred bucks <laughs> and then I asked two of my friends to buy it. So now my creator coin is worth like five bucks. <laughs> I, 
it, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I remember hearing a lot of people having some very strong opinions about this project a little while back, but you can't help but sort of think about the way you described it, almost like uh, class elections when you're in uh, like high school, <laughs> like getting your friends to, to get your token. Obviously, we don't want to uh, have you disclose your pseudonymous token, but uh, we'll, we'll watch to see what's rising on that platform and we'll, we'll see if it correlates to your, uh, your engagement. Okay. <laughs> so... I will tell you guys, although I was unplugged last week, one of the stories that caught my attention, I I was pretty interested in. um, So I I did do a little bit of reading. It was around how uh, companies get to treat and account for their investments in digital assets. So um, I don't know if you guys saw, I think Jack, maybe you have, but we saw that uh, FASB or the Financial Accounting Standards Board outlined some new guidance for companies about how they should account for their crypto assets. And I think this is really interesting because a lot of folks have questioned whether or not the, the ambiguity or the lack of clarity around accounting for these assets has held back some institutions that might otherwise invest. Don't know, don't want to speculate around that, but th- this is pretty interesting because they've come forward and said that on their recommendation would be to have these assets valued at fair value or counted for at fair value, meaning they would mark to market based on the current price of these instruments. There still is a formal vote that needs to take place, uh, which would make it an accounting standard update. But when I dug into this a little bit more, I was learning that if you are currently holding an asset on your balance sheet, you don't actually get to keep the current fair value. You have to mark it at uh, either cost or an impairment. And Jack, I, w- I asked you about this because I-, I wanted to get your take on this. What do we mean by an impairment? Yeah, so really an impairment uh, being the price of the asset went down uh, and you have to mark it down and therefore that hurts your your bottom line. So it shows up like a loss. And you can see it in a lot of the companies that operate in the crypto space that might have crypto on their balance sheet or even companies that don't operate in the crypto space and they do hold it on their balance sheet or, or in their treasury, right? There's there's a handful of those. And you can see that their, their income statements often look quite wacky, at least at the very bottom line. That impairment shows up just before that, that actual EP that you end up reporting. And so if the price of Bitcoin, when you hold Bitcoin on your balance sheet, went down throughout the quarter uh, below your cost basis, you do have to mark it down at that lowest price, at least under sort of the current guidance, which is there was no precedent set before specific to digital assets. So really what, what ended up happening was it it lived in, in indefinitely lived intangibles was like the assumed you know conservative way to account for it and it was this either it's at its cost basis each quarter or if it goes down in price below that cost basis it's at the lower uh, of the the that price which would cause an impairment and so you would say okay so you're you're taking a loss that shows up you know, on your income statement, it looks like you're less profitable, even though in reality, you know, it's just an asset that you're holding on your balance sheet. Then when it goes back up in price, if it goes back up in price, you don't get to mark it back up in price. So there's no benefit to writing it down. It would make your company look less profitable. And then if the the asset goes up in price, it can't actually help your income statement. And so it's like, 
is the reality really being reflected through the existing gap accounting rules, you know, prior to FASB sort of making this announcement, which I don't think officially is like sort of changing gap accounting yet, but it sounds like by the end of the year, we'll get more clarity in terms of what this, you know, it's not a regulator, but sort of regulator like private you know, board that helps set accounting rules, making this fair value accounting rule just seems fair. And it, good representation of like a, a regulatory like body, you know, making a fair ruling. So, so again, for those who may not be familiar, when you say gap accounting, it's generally accepted accounting principles. So these are the, the rules that tip, people typically apply, but I just want to make sure I, I put some numbers around this because I was, I was thinking about that. And the fact that a company can only recognize the downside and not the upside, that that's, I'm, I'm assuming it's pretty challenging depending upon what their long-term view is of a particular asset. Because we often know that sometimes assets that are lower value are projected to increase over time. Now, not speculating on price, but just looking at some, some actual example. If an entity were to have bought Bitcoin back in, say, 2017, and you know, we saw this rise up at the end of 2017 to almost $20,000, but then Bitcoin came back down to $3,000 over the next couple of years, it still went to 69000 and now it's hovering around 19000 So net, they would still be carrying this asset on their balance sheet at the lowest value that occurred throughout the time they held it. So they'd only reflect a $3,000 value versus the current nineteen. Correct. And like, if you're, if you're a research analyst that's covering that company, you're going to know that and you're going to know to back out like the actual value is, you know, how many Bitcoins sit on that balance sheet. And you can sort of actually back out the fact that they're, they're having to write all of this down and then they can't mark it up. You can net all of that out. But on the surface, it does change things like earning per share, you know, on a quarterly basis and, and things to that effect, which that affects, you know, management compensation. Right. When when EPS has a lot to do with if they get issued options, financial performance uh, has a lot to do with, you know, the, the compensation that executives receive. And so it, it sort of misaligns the incentive structure where if it can only hurt my my earnings and my financial statements. And then this is something that I'm just going to have to explain away on all the earnings calls to make sure that everybody understands what's actually happening here. It can almost be like uh, you throw the baby out with the bathwater and then don't even consider it. And again, this all of this has to do with you know, U.S. publicly traded companies for the most part in terms of the impact that this has. And I don't think that it necessarily changes like your average corporate treasurer looking at this asset class because it's still incredibly volatile. And fair market accounting means if the price of Bitcoin goes from 20000 today to 10000 and you bought it, you're going to have to mark that down and it's still going to hurt your earnings. It's just whenever it recovers, you know, it could you know, be, be reflected back you know, onto your balance yeah. sheet. So I, I, I just keep thinking about these different examples. So, you know, literally someone who has this, a, this type of asset on their balance sheet, they'd have to realize a reduction in earnings, but they don't get the tax benefit of a loss. At a later point in time, if they were to sell the asset and the asset had appreciated, at that point, they have to recognize the taxable gain, but at least they would see the realization. It sounds to me like this is, well, I believe it's welcome news. I don't know that it will translate to any type of change in the adoption, but it definitely helps to address questions that many of us have had over how how will we see progress around accounting for these assets as they become more and more um, widely utilized. So Jason and Jack, I 
for someone who hasn't studied formally finance, and I think I'm the only one on the on the panel, what what does this mean for like for institutions? Do you feel like there's going to be more adoption? I know Jason, you said that it's not really going to affect, but do you think it's a win for institutional crypto? I, I think it. I think it can be. So I, I think that when I say we don't know, it's because we we really don't, and we want to be a little bit uh, cautious in the way that we approach it. But if this were to have been a barrier, then this barrier is removed. There may be other barriers to Jack's point that might be around volatility. But I think in my own mind about what are some of the companies that might have these types of assets today and what could that mean for them? So that that's potentially um, meaningful to them if they now have an opportunity to reflect the current mark to market as opposed to the lowest historical value since they have acquired the asset. Gotcha. I would agree with Jason too, because changing the way that you can account for the assets doesn't actually materially change anything about the value of the asset when it's on your balance sheet prior to changing these rules and after changing the rules just makes the actual like depiction of what's actually happening to that company you know, more accurate in terms of the economic realities and the actual accounting statements. And so I think it's just a step in the right direction. It's a fair ruling if it does come to truly pass. Um, and I, I don't think it hurts, right? It's, it certainly doesn't hurt when before it was basically asymmetrically positioned one way or it could only hurt you. One interesting takeaway for me was that it, it's interesting how in this FASBI update, they spoke about only fungible assets and not just Bitcoin or not just digital assets. So that kind of rules out NFTs uh, and it's not just Bitcoin focused. Yeah, well, I think about an NFT and I, I see I see stories on Twitter in different places about, you know, some entity, some individual bought some NFT and it was priced very high and now it's not priced as high. What's the implication? Well, when you look at it from a financing perspective, if you're using something like that as collateral, there's an implication from marking to market and there might be a margin call if you were to do that. I'm not sure why FASB would have not discussed that, but I, it definitely makes sense to me they would think about this as a fungible asset because typically when you're talking about corporates, most of the assets that they would reflect on a balance sheet would be fungible assets. If, is that fair, Jack? Yeah, yeah. And I was just going to say, it doesn't seem like it's going to be like broad brush. Anything that calls itself a digital asset can be treated this way. Sounds like it'll be more narrowed and specific. And maybe we can use that as a as an opportunity Opportunity to just highlight another story we saw last week was that um, the world's largest custodian of assets by market value, uh, Bank of New York Mellon, um, announced that they were going live with their support for custody of, I believe it's Bitcoin and Ethereum. And you know, so I, I think they may have made this announcement previously that they were working on it, but now it's it's uh, progressed to the next step. But what I also thought was really interesting is when you dig into the press release. They speak a lot about uh, the potential for security tokens. So it's not just cryptocurrencies, but they're thinking about other digital assets. And I think that's that's pretty interesting. Um, I mean, what do you guys think about, about Boney Mellon and, and taking a step in this direction? Yeah, I mean, I think tokenized assets on blockchains we've seen only done in you know small experimental doses uh, thus far but like you can see something such as the outflow of stable coins as yields have risen 
and sort of like uh, groups like Maker, I think we had talked about a week or two ago, had decided that they're going to work with a third party to get access to uh, $500 million worth of treasuries because yields are, are higher and it's so much more optimal for them to do that uh, than to, to own a, a regulated fiat-backed stablecoin. Uh, and so tokenizing those assets and bringing them onto blockchains, uh, I think in the long term for you know large custodians uh, of the like, would makes a ton of sense. And at this point, we're sort of waiting for the opening shots to take place, so to speak. <laughs> well, maybe, but, maybe, but a lot of that's probably regulatory related, right? I was going to say, maybe um, part of what fueled their, their interest here is they, they referenced a survey that they had conducted with institutional investors to 91% of them were interested in, in investing in tokenized products. So I don't know how you would define product for that survey, but um, they noted that 41% of the institutional investors that responded already held cryptocurrencies in their portfolio, and uh, about another 15% were planning to include digital assets in their portfolio within two to five years. So, you know, not knowing who they are, not knowing the details of the survey, you would say here's some uh, empirical data that helps to. Um, strengthen their desire to be able to provide these services. And I, I think about it as if you're a provider of services in a given market, you want to try and retain your market share. And if you think that market is going to expand into different types of products, you want to be able to support the evolution of those new types of products. So it seems reasonable to me. I, I think we'll, we'll see other global institutions continuing to uh, expand their, their interest and exploration around uh, servicing for this type of tokenized or digital asset. But um, I think it's further evidence that we're seeing uh, more of a convergence of traditional financial services and uh, DeFi or, or digital asset marketplaces coming uh, closer together. So Parth, I wanted to ask you, as somebody who's been exploring the DeFi spaces, and as Jack pointed out, there hasn't been wide-scale adoption yet of uh, of tokenized assets. What do you hear in your communities? So you participate in different DAOs and things. Are, are people talking more about that in uh, the potential? Yeah, I think the theme of this year has been tokenizing real world assets. And so I, I see a lot of I see a lot of community participation, a lot of startups really focused on buying apartments in, in Thailand uh, using tokens or buying stuff which uh, which which is directly mapped to assets. Uh, that's that's been kind of one of the one of the themes. And I feel like this has been an ongoing theme for years. Uh, initially, people thought about tokenizing everything, and now it's 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 sort of uh, now you have a few areas specifically where people want to tokenize stuff like like real estate. But I think this would also be a good segue to ta- talk about mango markets. I I know we have spoken a lot about hacks, uh, and uh, I Jack, do you want to give us a quick update on what the mango market hack was? I know we keep talking about it, but I think it's still worth covering. Yeah. So. I mean, last week, Mango Markets uh, uh, Dex on Solana uh, had an exploit of end up being around $100 million worth of assets. An attacker uh, brought in, I think it was around $5 million 
uh, of USDC onto the platform, was able to sort of borrow against that uh, and pump up the price of the Mango token, which is the DEX's native token, uh, and then was able to create what ended up being a bad debt position against that, where they were able to lever it into a, a, an illiquid asset. The price got marked up like 10 times, and then they were able to retrieve funds as a result of the price rising. So then there was a, a debt created, and then the price of the token, of course, collapsed back down because it was an illiquid asset uh, to its sort of you know, price before or in that area. So 10 times down, you know, minus 90%. And there was this massive bad debt created on the protocol as a result of it because the, the person took those funds you know, borrowed and, and ran away with them effectively. So, so Jack, if I can ask you, when you say bad debt, and, and just humor me, we're talking about mango markets, okay? Someone comes in and they bring in some cash or cash equivalent, and they decide to go and they buy uh, an illiquid asset. Let's say it's something like uh, guava fruit, okay? There's not a big market on that. Once they borrow that, they actually create demand for that asset. So now guava price goes up. And they turn around and take a loan against the guava for something else. And then as a result, the price comes back down, but they think you walk away with the funds that they had borrowed. Yeah. And, and the, basically the collateral is no good, right? Because the collateral isn't actually worth what the protocol thinks it's worth. You're margin calling, but there's no bid on the side of like, you're trying to sell that token, but there's nobody that's bidding it in size at that price because it's 10 times the price that it was actually trading at in the free market because you effectively manipulated the price up, right? And then you were able to get away with those funds. But but this type of issue wouldn't necessarily just be applicable in a DeFi market, right? If you had any liquid asset, in theory, this type of mechanics could be applied. Yeah, totally. So like a traditional prime broker is always thinking about the liquidity of assets. So if you have a, a large S&P 500 stock that trades, you know, I don't know, X billion dollars worth a day versus some small micro cap that makes up your portfolio, you're going to get you know, better leverage terms or be able to borrow more against the position that's more liquid than the one that's less liquid. I just think about this as this is another area where the experiences of traditional financial services players can help to strengthen the DeFi markets because of the different risk management practices that have evolved over time. I I absolutely agree. We have seen quite a few hacks based on uh, price manipulation, and that is something which is extremely serious that that leads to a lot of exploits. Um, And so in this scenario, Mango Markets said that there was a lot of uh, Oracle manipulation in the kind of price feeds they were getting. And so the hacker was able to manipulate all of that. Uh, and that's why Mango tokens became illiquid since there isn't much volume anyway. So the Mango market team kind of threw their Oracle provider uh, pit network kind of under the bus. Uh, but then there's a certain community which believes that this was also, this hack was possible because of the paper thin liquidity of these tokens like Mango token. Uh, but uh, what's also interesting to me is, and I know Jack covered like one half of the story, but the second half was that the hacker kind of, so they made a proposal, they turned around and they 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 said, hey, you know what? I'm going to return most of the funds uh, if the DAO votes on that and if the DAO promises not to pursue a criminal, criminal investigation. They put out this proposal to vote, but since the hacker had 32 million worth of these tokens, they voted a yes to their own proposal. <laughs> and it also surprisingly passed by 98%. And so I just think it's really it's I think it's really funny on how we talk about on-chain governance uh, and how you would see 
some sort of disruption within communities on how governance should not be mapped to one to one tokens. So right now, when we think about uh, community voting, we think about one token, one vote. Um, if you guys remember, there was a hack a few months ago called the Beanstalk hack, where the hacker flash loaned a bunch of tokens, voted on a proposal which benefited them, and then they walked away. So, so I think you will see a lot of new governance models, like the Optimism Foundation is looking at quadratic voting, or there are some protocols which are looking into soul-bound tokens for governance. And so I think we'll, this, this industry is ripe for innovation. Yeah, th that is fascinating. I'm talking about applying game theory in real life. I had read something about the DAO voting. I didn't think about the hacker having that many tokens where they could potentially influence the voting. But that is really quite an interesting situation. So I, again, we, we talk a lot about trying to do your own research and sometimes people get intimidated by that. But Parth, you talked about liquidity or in Jack, you talked about liquidity being some of the key contributors to this particular situation. If I'm a, a user and I, I'm relatively new, where do I go to find out information around like trading volumes over the past 24 hours of the past week? Am I going to look at like a coin market cap or am I going to DeFi Llama? Like what, what tools might somebody use to try and help learn about whether or not they're considering a liquid market or an illiquid market? Yeah, that's a really good point. DeFi Llama is like one of my go-to resources. I use a lot of Dune charts as well, uh, Dune analytics. And, uh, and then you have to go to uh, uh, CoinMarketCap, CoinGecko, basically places where you can see what the circulating supply is. Yeah, I mean, all of the above. I like CoinGecko, CoinMarketCap. We use CoinMetrics. Um, for, for a lot of data, um, but some of that is, of course, walled off. Um, but there's a lot of good open source stuff. Yeah, and I, th I think that's, in, in some ways, it's, it's education around the market itself, but also education around the tools, how to use the tools. I think th that evolution will continue to help this particular marketplace. And, you know, I, I did want to touch really quickly on one last story, and it's kind of like a boomerang back to the, the, um, the BNY Mellon story. Um, in, a, in part, it, my mind went there because we talked about some of the risks. And um, you guys are well familiar with Caitlin Long from Custodia Bank. You know, she's long been an advocate for not rehypothecating assets, meaning you know, don't take something pledged as collateral and let the the collateralized party reuse the asset. Um, and this talk around DeFi and loans and mango markets made me think. You know, the the organization that she founded and leads, Custodia has been waiting for a response to their Fed master account application for a while. And when I saw the BNY Mellon announcement, um, I saw that Caitlin had also been speaking at a, I think it was uh, Washington FinTech week situation. And this was one of those situations where um, you've got a, a very knowledgeable leader of an organization who was questioning the timing because there had been a report that had been produced by the Fed recently that was highlighting some of the risks associated with potential convergence of um, traditional financial services players and, uh, and DeFi. And in this particular situation, one was asking the question, well, if BNY Mellon, one of the largest custodians in the world, is now doing this, you know, will we see other entrants? And you know, is the are regulators getting more comfortable, or are there risk management practices that can be employed that will help get them comfortable as we see more in more entities that are applying for these types of Fed Master account um, capabilities? So 
the, the report she specifically was referencing was the financial stability implications of digital assets report. So I, I'm, I'm interested, I'm, I'm hoping we'll continue to see uh, more progress around institutions being able to interact both in the TradFi and the DeFi space. But I, I thought that was an interesting timing because the, the announcement came at the same day as this DC uh, FinTech Week discussion. I don't know if you guys saw those headlines or read any of the uh, communications that were floating around in social media, but um, I think it's an interesting time where, where hopefully we'll see some progress. It was a very passionate uh, commentary. So if you guys haven't seen it, I would encourage you to just take a look at uh, the YouTube videos that are out there. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a great time for us to be continuing to work in this space because there's so much progress, there's so much attention, but it's also challenging because there is so much need for education and there is so much need for engagement with legislators and policymakers. Yeah, it does seem like only a matter of time before there's, I don't know if breakthrough is the right word on some of these fronts uh, in regards to you know, regulating companies and allowing some of these smaller fintechs to be able to operate you know, in competition with the players that have scale and influence. Yeah, well, I think things like the FASB announcement, things like other traditional financial players coming into the space, um, you know, alongside you, know, we at Fidelity have been here for a while. There's others that are that are picking up momentum. So hopefully, uh, hopefully that we just get that continued clarity. Well, we want to thank everybody for joining us today, guys. Another great discussion. I can't wait till this coming week what the news is going to hold and uh, what the discussions like next week. Great. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Yes. Thanks. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and become illiquid at any time and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.